and welcome to the week that was for the week's end. This is a home with someone, some other tragic of the political economy, uh, where we talk about what's been going on in the last week, pick out a few interesting bits and pieces and uh, chew them over. And today in our parliamentary gallery uh, studio, um, our padded cell here, we have Max Harris. Welcome into the studio, Max. Sure, nice to be here. And Max is, of course, a, um, a long-time uh, social, economic and political commentator and um, activist, researcher, author of a book published in 2017 you may have heard of from Bridget Williams' books called The New Zealand Project and has contributed to lots of um, different research on, on areas as wide as welfare and housing. Fantastic that you're here, Max, in Wellington, because I know normally you're in Auckland. But um, welcome to the third hottest housing market in the world, <laughs> which is uh, one of the little news points of the week. But the other big thing that's come out this week, of course, it was put out without a press release or a news conference or any sort of, you know, hey, look at this, was the uh, must-produce-every-four-years Treasury long-term fiscal statement. Although, to be fair to them, it was their first draft version. And this is um, normally quite a big deal. You know, Treasury looks ahead, not the usual three seconds, but, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, and says to people, hey, you know the structure of our government thing? It's probably not okay <laughs> because we've got this ageing population. And uh, normally it comes out and says, right, we need to um, cut spending or change entitlements for pensions and health, and um, otherwise the world will end. But, um, and, and by now, to be frank, in political terms, a lot of politicians from both sides of politics actually now almost view it as, you know, ideological burp uh, every four years, move along now. But what did you think of the long-term fiscal? Yeah, well, as you said, the Treasury, you know, has put out statements like this before. And last time, in, I think 2016, Treasury said, you know, this is about what if projections for the future. And so there's, a, there's quite a lot of speculation at the time they, they put these out. And in some ways, this was another what if journey into the future, which is trying to throw a splash of cold water into the face of government about um, challenges that are kind of just around the corner. Um, so some of it is, you know, no surprise, worries about size of government spending and size of government debt. But I think... If you dig into it a little more, there are a couple of interesting twists and turns in the analysis. So one is that the Treasury has reiterated what has started to come out from, from them in the last couple of weeks, which is that there's no magic number for government debt that we should be concerned about. And that's hardly a radical statement. That's actually in the, in the mainstream of what uh, a lot of international organisations have been saying recently. But... You wouldn't, you wouldn't know it because there's a, a, a man in a green debt monster suit who turns up at every event with politicians to reinforce this message, which has been drummed into our political heads for 30 years. Exactly. New Zealand is a bad, bad boy on the, or girl on the global debt markets. It's about to be punished for being profligate and small and puny and there's some bond fund manager in New York or Zurich or... London, who wants to um, give us a flick around the ear for spending too much money. And these bond vigilantes are about to 
kill us off if we don't do the right thing, which is to keep the size of our government small and not have too much debt. And if we do get into debt because of some crisis, we need to quickly, as soon as the crisis is over, get that debt down again, which is the story of the last 10 years, really. Um, the debt went up in the global financial crisis and because of the Christchurch earthquakes and then Bill English from 20, the end of 2011, 2012 onwards until he got booted out. Uh, um, just basically squeezed government down, had this sort of sinking lid policy and the debt got squeezed down to near the 20% debt of net debt, 20% uh, of GDP target um, level, which is really being also drummed in to every bureaucrat's uh, budgetary expert in the government uh, as something that, that's a good thing, it's a normal thing, it's a real thing. And we all need to um, structure all of the things we do to make sure we stick to that debt track. And you hear it coming through in the language and the framing from, from uh, not just Bill English, but <laughs> Graham Robertson. Um, you'd read any press statement about it, an announcement, particularly in the last year or so. Every third or fourth paragraph has the phrase, keeping a lid on debt in it. It's been focus grouped and it's like a, a red button world. When they have the focus groups and someone says, yeah, I want the government to keep a lid on debt, some some um, some rabbit in some room gets fed, fed a pellet. <laughs> but, um, but, but just you're right. In the last couple of weeks, Treasury has started to say, you know what, this 20% thing, it's uh, it's a bit of a relic. In fact, right now, 60% um, is no problem. And we could sustain that debt with current interest rates and the way markets are open. Mm -hmm. Remember, we have this massive savings glut mm -hmm. globally, powered by an extra $10 trillion worth of money printing mm -hmm. by central banks who've bought bonds and given that cash to already rich people who've parked it in their garage. Mm -hmm. And so those people with um, money in garages in Switzerland are just desperate to put it somewhere safe and lovely, um, like New Zealand government bonds, if they could get their hands on it, because the Reserve Bank's too busy buying them. So the Treasury have started to ease up on this. And they've started to um, uh, uh, they've started to get their own rhetoric about well-being. There's been a living standards framework at Treasury for three or four years. Uh, well, maybe a bit longer than that, to be fair to Gerald Karajolu, the um, now retired um, chief economist uh, person from Treasury who's still banging the drum out there uh, from university land. But you could tell largely it was a, it was the lipstick <laughs> on, the, on the porcine thing. And uh, there wasn't a lot of belief in it. And really when push came to shove and hard cabinet discussions, it was always about the debt track. Mm. Now Treasury is saying, you know what, maybe we should use our balance sheet, which is astonishingly strong and healthy compared to everyone else's, to solve some of our longer-term issues around climate change, housing affordability, those sorts of things, which is anathema to the old Treasury. Tre old Treasury would say, yeah, when there's an earthquake or a disaster, yeah, we use the balance sheet to soften the blow. But then as soon as things are back to normal, we, we get back to the old habits of running surpluses, <laughs> repaying debt, mm. and cutting taxes, because mm. that's the role of government. Mm. Uh, but now, Carolee McLeish, the Treasury Secretary, is saying, you know what, um, we could do quite a lot of good with borrowed money and having debt, that um, there is good debt. 
And particularly if we use it carefully to invest in infrastructure and spending that makes people healthier and happier and more productive, um, maybe that's a good idea. And uh, I'm interested in how far they take it. Do you think that that they're sort of testing the waters, or do you think they're, <laughs> or do you think it's more lipstick? Yeah, I think before I get to that, I think it's worth dwelling on this point for a moment because, as you say, this is a key fundamental framing point for a lot of New Zealand politics, and it has been that way for about 30 years. It's literally written into the law in the Public Finance Act that the government has to uh, consider prudent debt and focus on re- reducing debt to prudent levels. And, and you Although, interestingly, they don't say, and the number is 20. Exactly. And that's the key thing. Maybe Treasury can interpret that word prudent to mean something else. And that was one of the interesting things in her speech. Yeah, you're right. And this comes out again in, in, in this long-term fiscal statement, which is why it's an important marker. Um, because, as you say, it, it begins to open up the conversation um, so that we're not so one-sidedly just focusing on the risks of debt, but also balancing that against the risks of underinvestment, which I think have started to become clear or have been arguably clear for a long time across infrastructure and um, social services. Uh, And so that's one important marker, I think, in in the report. I think um, there's a little bit of um, testing the water of a new way of thinking. Um, There's some interesting comments about um, how there are different reasons to be concerned about debt. Uh, Default is one, and the government defaulting on the debt. Um, Market access from creditors is another, and then well-being is the third. Um, But... They actually say in this in the statement, Treasury, that um, debt could be substantially higher um, than it than it has been in the past, and um, without risking um, any of these underlying reasons to be concerned. And in the past, the Treasury has had this fifty to sixty percent uh, figure. Where, where yeah, it was interesting. That was Gabs McClough in twenty nineteen. Yeah. Uh, who I think was also trying to stretch things a bit. 20% previously was the number. In fact, very briefly in 2017, uh, Stephen Joyce and Bill English tried to come up with a new one, which was even lower, which actually when you talk to some of the debt market experts, one of the reasons for 20% is the number is that's about as low as you can go and still have a liquid bond market. Mm-hmm. And a bond market is a useful thing um, because it sets the base for interest rates and it's a a key um, oily ingredient that keeps financial markets running. Mm. And um, I, I've yet to see any serious, uh, um, not only ideological, but actual bond market reason for 20% being the number. It's just one of those things that's been assumed, like, you know, the, the, uh, the Holy Trinity, you know. <laughs> Of, of um, the Holy Ghost and the two other guys. Um, it's it's a, a fascinating thing how essentially the, the clothes have dropped from this emperor and now we're starting to think about other ways of doing it. I, I wonder too whether um, uh, Treasury is equipped to start doing the real work you need if you're going to do this properly. If you're going to work out, okay, if I'm going to invest $50 billion in improving the um, STEM skills of a couple of hundred thousand kids, mm. how much value is that going to create? Mm. I mean, it all seems very you know, hard-nosed and actuarial. But if you do it properly, and there are, there are some good numbers coming through from the Growing Up in New Zealand study and the Dunedin study, 
which can actually start to measure inputs and outputs and say, well, yeah, if you increase the PISA scores of these 200,000 kids by three points over 10 years, then that means your productivity rate goes up by X and your GST and income tax will go up by Y and your health spending costs will go down by X and let's see if the numbers stack up. Yeah, and as you say, this is a this is not just a technical point. So, I mean, there is a technical point that that uh, most economists would say there's, there's very little evidence that any of these like percentage numbers, um, uh, numbers we can be sure about where debt gets dangerous. I think um, Reinhardt and Rogoff, the, the American economists, who around the time of the last global financial crisis said 90% was a number that they had some confidence in, and then it turned out that was based on a spreadsheet error, um, <laughs> that paper. Um, but how, the they, reason, how does that guy keep his job? He's still out there, Reinhardt and yeah, Rogoff, yeah, yeah, still Rogoff, doing stuff. Anyway. Yeah, they're, all, they're both still circulating. But um, I think the key, the key broader point, um, just to kind of step out of the weeds, is that, that this has often been a way to keep a lid on the size of the state, not just keep a lid on debt. And as you say, when we, when we um, throw off those constraints, those artificial constraints a little bit more, we open up the debate about what good quality necessary investment is needed. And that's what we start to see in this um, in this statement. And the second important marker in it for me, which was connected to this, was um, the Treasury saying, actually, it might be time to modernise that law where um, the law that says the government has to be concerned about prudent debt, the Public Finance Act. And in talking about that um, act, um, this, this Treasury statement says one of the problems with the Public Finance Act is it doesn't focus enough on value gained from existing expenditure, which is connected to what you just said. And they also say um, it maybe hasn't supported coordinated joined up spending. It maybe hasn't been very good at encouraging a long-term view. Um, again, maybe just testing the water, but starting to get us thinking about a different kind of fiscal framework. Because yeah, I quite like that balance sheet approach. And there's something intuitively right uh, about the, the language that even people like Bill English was using back in uh, 20 from 2014 to 2017, where he talked about the investment approach. You know, you invest a lot of money in uh, poor kids, basically, to bring them up to speed and try and break intergenerational poverty cycles. It's a fantastic way for conservatives to justify spending money on poor people, which is actually quite hard for conservatives to normally do. And you've got to admire Bill English for taking that route. You don't hear the National Party talk about it a lot anymore. Um, it's very easy to fall back into the, the dog whistling that normally goes on about not giving my hard-earned tax money to um, useless losers who waste it on, on drugs and booze, you know, which, of course, is the most crass um, generalisation which no a welfare economist or a social policy expert would have anything to do with. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that um, National are in a position to do it at the moment with their current uh, leader and crop of people around them. But at some point, the likes of Nicola Willis or Chris Bishop will crop up. And this is where I think there is a, a path forward for a political solution to this, which is to convince either National or Labour, or um, at least be able to offer to both of them the prospect of uh, uh, investment of public money in public infrastructure funded by public debt mm. in a way that is economically and um, 
socially justifiable. Mm. One thing I'm curious about, and you could tell us a lot more about this, is the idea of an of a state-run investment bank, mm. which the Tories uh, in Britain, uh, who are not known for being, they certainly wouldn't want to be seen to be socialist, <laughs> but they certainly liked the idea of an investment bank, and also it was a proposal that was put up by National in the last election. So tell us a bit more about how that works. Yeah, it's an idea that um, has been circulating for a while in the UK, it was circulating while I was living in the last few years. It's also, um, yeah, a, an idea that, that has been implemented in, in lots of countries around the world. Um, and basically the idea of a, a national investment bank, or sometimes called a national development bank, is it's a, it's a public bank. Um, which involves an injection of capital uh, at the outset from the state and then uh, loans money often for particular missions. So uh, one proposal in the UK was uh, for a national investment bank to be focused on innovation, uh, SME, small and medium enterprises and um, green uh, business. Uh, And the idea is that... um, it's a form of industrial policy. It's a form of, of active state policy to try to kickstart certain kinds of industry. But it is only um, about loans going to particular companies. Um, and uh, the proposals that were circulating in the UK were suggesting that a bank like this would still make a profit, but it wouldn't be profit maximising. And that um, it would also play a role, um, and this has been carried through into the Tories' proposal in the UK, in sort of working alongside businesses to build their capacity, um, you know, uh, uh, in the same way that, you, that some banks have, to, have played this role in the past. Um, I think there's a lot of merit in the idea, but there's also um, a lot of very different versions of this policy. Um, and, and we see one version of this coming out of the UK Tories, and another version being proposed by um, National um, at the last election. The National one was much more about infrastructure That's right. and tried to extend forward the ideas that Bill English had right. around his housing infrastructure fund, which was designed to lend money to councils yeah. to kickstart housing projects in particular. It yeah. seemed good on the face of it. It was about a billion dollars. was hard used yeah. because council said, ah, you want me to take more debt onto my balance sheet and I've got the local government funding agency telling me I'm breaching my debt covenant, so no thank you. And it was the current government that's decided that grants are actually better. Yeah, so the UK model is also focused on infrastructure. So it's a, it's a UK infrastructure bank. Um, they've they've centred it, uh, established last month in Leeds. So one of the other ideas is that it's, it's meant to boost regional development and it's about getting the government out of the capital, out of London. Um, but yeah, like I said, it could go beyond infrastructure um, yeah, to, to, to broader broader goals like climate change um, and innovation. Um, and yeah, it, it draws on this idea that, that the economist Mariana Mazzucato has talked about of a, of a mission economy. It's a, you know, an economy that picks a, a kind of ambitious goal uh, and involves state investment to try to, to try to achieve that goal. And so the, the, the example that Mazzucato often uses to try to show that state-led missions can be important is your iPhone. And uh, Matsukato says, even though we often talk about the iPhone as, as a great example of private sector innovation, every key technology in the iPhone can be traced back to, to public funding, with the um, touchscreen, um, GPS, um, the internet. Uh, and so it's a sort of an extension of this idea. And we see sort of versions of this in New Zealand at the moment with the... Um, Green Investment Finance Limited, 
um, proposal, which I think got more, more funding at the budget, um, the, the Venture Investment Fund, which has been around for a little longer. Um, but we haven't seen um, this sort of model take a, take a stronger institutional form. Um, and I think there's a lot of merit in taking us forward in New Zealand as well. Yes, and maybe at some point we need to have our own Ministry of Works again, uh, which when you look at our house building capacity and performance through the 40s, 50s and 60s, that was a Ministry of Works lead thing. I know if you talk to some older people from, who were around in the 80s when it still existed, it was eventually wound down and broken up. And uh, I think some of some of the private companies left over Becker uh, is, a, is a, one of the um, offshoots of the Ministry of Works. Um, it was often called Uncle Mo in a slightly, <laughs> slightly, um, slightly pejorative way, in a gliding on sort of way. But... Um, you know, when you look at the problems we've got at the moment with delivery and speed of delivery, for example, Transmission Gully, you know, two years late, three years late, an attempt was made to do a fancy public-private partnership where everyone went to the lowest common denominator and lo and behold, two-thirds of the way through it, well, you know, that that um, that really attractive-looking <laughs> tender I gave you, it didn't take into account that... Um, the rock in Wellington is different from the rock in Huntley or wherever it is I did my forecast. And you know what? I can't complete this unless you give me an extra billion. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a growing understanding that there are real teething problems with contracted out infrastructure, um, sometimes called you know, procurement. Uh, and that involves consulting fees, legal fees, um, doesn't always involve very strong accountability mechanisms, but also there's a limit um, in capacity, and we're seeing that in the housing space at the moment. And so I think one of the reasons I'm uh, yeah, a real supporter of the Ministry of Works idea is that I think it can be a response, not just to those problems of procurement, but also to the limits in capacity we see in the private sector at the moment. You know? And also you can start to measure the long-term life of project costs, and not just in financial terms, but in social and carbon terms, for example. So if you're Treasury or um, the Infrastructure Commission or whoever is awarding the contract and ultimately has to go to Cabinet, I suppose, you're not just going to say, well, the cost of this project is X billion and um, the borrowing costs are uh, 2% on X billion, mm. and we can calculate that um, people will spend you know four minutes a day <laughs> less commuting back and forth mm. because of that um, X billion of spending, and we can justify it because um, wow, look at the pictures on telly when they cut the ribbon; it's great. <laughs> Sorry, benefit to cost ratio. What was that? Oh, oh, but the ribbon. Look at the ribbon. Oh, and look how good uh, he she looks in um, high vis and a helmet. Uh, so. Um, but if Treasury was able to look at that project, let's say it was, for example, increasing the STEM um, performance of 200,000 kids by five points over 10 years, and you started to work out, or for example, let's say um, turning the Auckland Harbour Bridge, um, half of it at least, into a cycle and, and walkway. And yes, you've got increased congestion and slower commuting times, but at the same time, um, you've not had to spend six hundred and eighty million or whatever the final number is on a new bridge, and um, a whole bunch of people have had a lot of fun and are not going to get um, sick. Uh, um, uh, and apart from anything else, you'd get some tourism spending too. Yeah. There's an enormous amount of infrastructure 
uh, and housing that was uh, built by the Ministry of Works that we had. Uh, so I think we had a Ministry of Works from 1870 to 1988. Um, and it's easy to, to forget this. And it wasn't perfect in many ways. Um, it, it, it involved removal of a lot of Māori land, for example. But it's the example, if, if it was done, I think, differently and for the 21st century of a kind of um, high-quality investment that we can at least be talking about if we um, break free of this um, public debt straitjacket we were talking about earlier. Um, and as you say, I think that there are a lot of um, exciting opportunities to consider. Um, I mean, it involves um, yeah, bringing engineers back into the public sector and, and architects, which was a which a part of the, the previous Ministry of Works. Um, yeah, you could have construction and assembly. We could be talking about assembling buses through the public sector, mass state housing builds, um, not to mention kind of concern for the whole um, supply chain and thinking about how we can coordinate training, um, for example, of, of tradespeople and link that up to an ambitious public infrastructure agenda. You were talking about public infrastructure earlier. So, yeah, I think it, it really shows um, alongside a, a kind of national investment bank, the kinds of ideas we could be thinking about if we were thinking a bit more creatively about the state um, and perhaps leaving aside some of these old orthodoxies. Yeah, or even using the frameworks that are there. I mean, if the Treasury and the arms of government making these procurement decisions were able to include the long-term life of asset costs and benefits and the opportunity costs of not doing them mm. in these analyses. Um, for example, you know, a decision to do free public transport yeah. for everyone in Auckland. Auckland, So you get a massive increase in the usage of public transport. Uh, the, the, um, you get a, a less congestion on the motorways, less demand to spend billions on motorways, a lot of embedded carbon, not to mention the time it takes to swap people into electric cars? Uh, what if they were on a bus or what if they walked or cycled? Um, maybe in, in a lot of terms, social terms, health terms, carbon terms, you would not be spending as much money. So you could exactly. be a hard-ass treasury guy or gal and say, actually, the best use of the money and the best long-term return, the best net present value from all of this is to, maybe it's to roll out 10,000 electric buses in Auckland and to say to everyone, you know, maybe it's a dollar a fare or nothing. Mm. And suddenly you might get lots of usage of those things. And it's a really good point about um, how we don't think enough, I think, about costs of inaction um, because traditionally Treasury has been very good at, at or, or has, has focused a lot of its time on costing government proposals and getting us concerned about the cost. And that's what this long-term fiscal statement is doing. But there's much less analysis. There is a nod to this, I think, but there's much less analysis of what would happen if we didn't spend what is needed on health or on super or in other areas of social services. Obviously, there are value judgments to be made there about what is needed. The other related point um, is that you stop spending as a government and... Spending across society doesn't just disappear. Often, if you restrict health spending, to touch on a point that was raised in that long-term fiscal statement, you, you merely shunt costs over to the, to the private sector and you require people to spend in the private sector with all the equity issues that come with that. Um, and I'd like to see a treasury that, that grapples more with that um, possibility. I should say, um, on a more positive note about this long-term fiscal statement, that it, it, was, it was interesting to see, and this again seemed to me to be a departure from the last long-term fiscal statement they um, put out, 
it was interesting to see in this in this draft for consultation a focus on different ways money could be saved in health, which didn't just involve cuts to healthcare. So there was actually an interesting reference to centralization as being one way to, to save money. There's an interesting reference to addressing the social determinants of health. That is investing now in some of the underlying reasons, which might include poor housing, that people are um, unhealthy. Uh, and, and I think, again, there's a, if not a change in tune, a very quiet echo of something slightly different from Treasury. Yes. And at least there were, there were a, a few little sneaky options they popped in there at the end where they said, um, and normally the prescription is uh, extend the retirement age, um, reduce the uh, connection between pensions and average wages, uh, sell a bunch of stuff. Uh, I'm being a bit facetious here, but essentially that's been the prescription. But at least this time they said, well, you know, what if we increase tax rates? Now, right. they did say let's increase GST and income tax. Uh, there was like a final paragraph saying, well, there is this thing called a capital tax. They do it some other places in the world. And I know it's um, verboten politically to talk about it because the Prime Minister has said it won't happen in her, uh, it won't happen at, um, over her live body, and that's fair enough. Um, but it is good to see the gov- the Treasury talking about it, and they even talked about a land tax, which I thought was good because my little um, um, thing to throw into the debate I did a couple of weeks ago where I suggested, hey, why don't we do some wealth redistribution uh, and kill another couple of birds at the same, st- at the same time, A, reduce land prices, and B, provide some uh, uh, captured dedicated revenue to service debt, which is, let's say, a 0.5% land tax to raise around $4 billion a year on the current value of land, which would probably drive down land prices by about 10% to where they were in, I don't know, January. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, use that $4 billion a year to service the debt on a couple of hundred billion a year and actually have a national project, you talk about a mission economy, which says, right, we are going to get housing affordability down to a, a level that we think is fair. For example, 30% of your disposable income. Uh, or maybe it's four times income with an interest rate of 6% or something reasonable. And, and if we as a society said that's our mission, I think that's a fair mission. We know it probably will benefit a few people. And if you did it over a long enough period, you might be able to get away with it politically because everyone's worried right now to actually make housing affordable you know, in a year or two, you'd have to either halve prices of houses or double incomes. Neither are going to happen. So um, what you need to do is over a 30-year period, build like mad, build climate-friendly, warm, high-quality houses that are good for communities and good for public transport and close to schools and work and all of that. And um, at the same time, that will give you an extra $4 billion in cash flow, which we're currently wasting on accommodation supplements and a million dollars a day in motels and a whole bunch of income-related rent subsidies for um, Housing New Zealand. So you've got $7 billion that you could play with there to service that debt and actually not increase your debt rack at all. Mm-hmm. What it would do is add 1% <laughs> to the size of government as a factor of GDP. And 
Um, this for me is one of the most interesting things here. Out of the long-term fiscal, and they, they did put the numbers in, in there, New Zealand has a low-tax society. Yeah, I think that was an interesting comment, wasn't it? Because we, you often hear in New Zealand political debates that New Zealand has a, a low-level, broad-based um, system, but uh, there's a comment in here that actually, yeah, New Zealand's tax-to-GDP ratio is below the OECD average and um, dependent on a, um, dependent much more than other countries on, on a narrow set of taxes, which suggests that actually we don't have such a broad base. Um, even even get a reference to um, inheritance taxes. And, um, and, and, and <laughs> taxes! Um, and you still get a bit of old treasury in, in the mention of, of company tax because I think there's a, there's a line in there where the treasury says, well, you have to be aware that you might have multinationals restructuring or moving offshore. Oh, and we wouldn't want that, would we? No. <laughs> without, without, I think, any um, uh, real kind of elaboration of that. But, yeah, I think what's important is, is yeah, this broader discussion of, of um, the, the need to, to rethink tax as one response. Good segue into the discussion that's been going on with a couple of big announcements and it seems like actual action on the big global tax deal, which um, a couple of weeks ago took a leap forward at the G7 after the G20 finance ministers got together. And um, essentially, it's a deal where America, <laughs> which is where all these global tech giants are based, America agrees to letting some of those tech, potential tax revenues from those tech giants be paid to uh, governments in countries where they operate in exchange, as I understand it, for some of those countries who've gone out on their own with digital services taxes to drop those. Um, and now the question is, can it be made to stick? So can you give us a sense of you know the, the hurdles that are out there and whether it might stick? Yeah, so I know this can sound complicated, but I, again, actually, I think the key principles um, are relatively straightforward. So at the moment, um, the problem is, multinationals do a lot of profit shifting, what's called profit shifting. That means they can they can book their profits or revenues in low tax jurisdictions and in tax havens. For example, the example that's often raised, you know, Facebook booking its advertising revenue, which could be booked anywhere. This is where they make their advertising money in Ireland because they don't have to pay taxes in Ireland. And, and this is a response to that. It's saying, actually, we need to... Um, tax multinationals fairly, and there are two key pillars to the, to the agreement. Uh, the first is really about parceling out um, the profits that a, a multinational is making all around the world fairly, reflecting where economic activity is actually happening. And then the second is setting a global minimum corporate tax rate, which is um, basically trying to um, top up any... Uh, multinational that's paying less than a particular level. Um, and just to, to zoom in a little bit more on the kind of points of debate around this. So on, on the first pillar, this is parceling out the profits away from those tax havens like Ireland more fairly around the world. Basically, the proposal in, in, in exchange for, for, company, for countries dropping the digital services tax, as you said, basically what's being proposed here is... Um, actually a relatively small part of the profits of very big multinationals being parceled out according to where sales are happening. So this is good for the US, perhaps unsurprisingly, because the US is where a lot of sales are made, say, of 
um, products made by, by Apple. Um, not so good for countries in the global south. And so this is one point of, of debate because um, groups like the um, like ICRICT, which is this body of, of economists, including Nobel Prize winner Joe Stiglitz, say when you're looking at actually where economic activity is happening, you shouldn't just look at sales, you should look at the operations and the, the workforce. And they're saying uh, this is unfair for the global south um, because um, the workforce and the, the operations of, of your, your, your Googles and um, Apples are often in the global south. And um, yeah, a fairer formula would be to parcel out on that wider basis. That's one of the points of debate. Um, on the second point, um, there's a bit of uh, disappointment that the, the global minimum has been set quite low. So it's been set at 15%. Um, and there were proposals earlier for, for, for that to be uh, much higher. There's a strong push for it to be at 25% and, and higher still. Um, and so, yeah, you've had um, groups like the South Centre, which represents a lot of, of countries in the Global South or developing countries, saying this is limited and disappointing. Um, the African Tax Justice Network came out with quite a scathing comment, actually, um, about this 15% uh, level being too low. Um, there are carve-outs for finance and for extractives, which take out kind of a big chunk of... of oh, so the banks don't pay. Yeah. These are, these oh, are no wonder the British loved the, it. In the phone print. That was, I noticed that a couple of weeks after the, the deal came out, um, when the Rishi Sunak, the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, what a great name for a finance minister, a Chancellor of the Exchequer came out and said, ah, ah well, you know, this deal, uh, not the banks in London, by the way, we need them carved out. Exactly. Um, so there's a lot of points of, um, of difference um, and, and disagreement. Um, the African Tax Justice Network also said this should be done by a UN tax body um, that um, is more representative than the G7 or the G20, which are these self-appointed groups. Um, but as you said, the question now is, is whether it sticks. So I think 130 countries have agreed and nine countries out of that grouping have, have uh, indicated sort of some resistance, including Ireland. Um, to be sure. Now, <laughs> so, this is this is the thing, because the problem with any sort of collective action around a public good, there's always someone who wants to run away from the pack and gobble up the thing which um, the rest of us are trying to protect. And the problem for places like Ireland and Hungary and Poland, I think, um, not to mention the actual tax havens themselves, is that um, they risk essentially, you know, cutting their throats to make other people happy. And it's going to get pretty brutal at some point. Um, it was a really interesting phase in the midst of the global financial crisis when the Irish, who have been playing this game for a long time now, there's an awful lot of global pharma and tech companies based in Ireland paying hardly any tax, in fact, lower than the legislated rate because they do deals on the side with, mm. the, with the Irish politicians. And uh, understandably, the French and the Germans are getting a bit grumpy with this. Mm. And during the middle of the global financial crisis, when the European Central Bank had to bail out, essentially, these Irish banks that had gone nuts on housing, um, this became a point in the debate, mm. which was, you're, you're a bit of a sociopath on the, on the tax front, mate. Um, why don't you play ball and be part of the, the, the team on tax mm. uh, if you want us to bail out your banks? Mm -hmm. uh, it was parked, unfortunately, but that's essentially in the game of real politic. Mm. Uh, if you've got a sovereign nation, you will 
the incentives are actually larger when everyone else agrees. The incentives for you to, to jump out and go, hey, come and join me over here on, the, on this side of the bank. And um, effectively, I think the Irish in particular, but also those other Eastern European countries who, who are either in the EU or hope to join the EU, they're going to have to get beaten up, frankly, by the Germans and the French. And um, some really ugly things are going to have to be done if they're, if they're serious. Yeah, and there is a real opportunity here. You know, once you have an agreement on taxing multinationals fairly, you can you can progress that over time. You can update it over time. And yeah, there's just, just two um, quick points on this. I think is one is that um, uh, it, it, it's often said in the context of tax changes that we can't we can't do anything until we get a global agreement. We hear this on financial transactions taxes as well. Um, and then you know we see we see individual countries trying to like Ireland trying to break away again. Um, and and so that's that's point one that yeah as you say there's going to be a lot of intensive negotiations. Um, the second point is just that I do think not denying that there's going to be a lot of um, difficulty in the, in the coming weeks on this, but um, there is some recognition um, in at least um, British policy circles that I'm familiar with that actually this this low tax um, model for attracting uh, multinationals and companies hasn't really reaped the rewards that were promised in terms of productivity growth or growth more generally. I mean, one example of this is the UK, where you have quite a good kind of natural experiment where um, the start of the last decade, um, corporation tax was cut. Um, and obviously, there's lots of factors that, that affect outcomes. But we had 10 years following austerity of very stagnant productivity growth. Some people call it a lost decade. And you got a lot of commentators saying, well, actually, all you did by cutting corporation tax was increase the profits of these companies and multinationals. Um, and, yeah, while, while not actually generating much innovation. Or that, that, that is true, and particularly for um, the UK, where they have um, built themselves their own tax haven industry. The amount of laundered money that is in London real estate is just shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's the odd soccer team here and there that. That seems to be owned by people who have made a lot of money in various interesting places. But, um, and that's true, and I, I think it is quite hard to extract out uh, the low productivity story mm-hmm. and connect it with that. Yeah. But when you look at Poland and Ireland, at their productivity numbers and their you know, wealth per citizen, they've actually done really well by, by essentially taking advantage of this um, uh, game where you... Um, you're essentially playing an arbitrage on everyone else and taking the benefits. Um, I'm surprised they get away with this. <laughs> and, and I think that, that there will be a, a real politic game they will have to play. Uh, and unfortunately, it's so easy for the big tech companies to play one off against the other. Also, I can see that in America, where, frankly, this needs to pass through the Congress to get through, mm. and because of the problems they hear, they have there at the moment with this very finely balanced Senate, and also the um, the lack of the ability to get through major changes. Um, I, I wouldn't want to talk too much about the filibuster because we've only got seven hours. <laughs> no, they're going to be real political challenges. And I and on the on the other point. I guess it it depends on on you know on Ireland and Poland. It depends on how we define doing well. But certainly there there've been um, I think you know increased profits and uh, or, or sorry increased wealth for um, 
for a certain portion of society and whether whether those countries have developed sort of well-balanced innovative long-term economies I think it's more Speaking of imbalanced short-term economies, you've read a book uh, about rentier capitalism. This is a word, rentier, that you would normally hear in the days of Pride and Prejudice and uh, Mr. Darcy. But what's this all about? Yeah, so, I mean, the idea of rent economics is defined in different ways, but is, is, is you know, is really talking about people that make money from um, from property or investment. That's often how it's used. And rentier capitalism is defined in this book as uh, an economic model where um, people are making money from sitting on investments or properties or assets. But also, and this is the point that the author adds, um, assets where there's a significant degree of, of market power or control, where those assets are scarce. Um, and yeah, I wanted to mention this book because um, there's a New Zealand connection. The, the author, Brett Christophers, did uh, spend a few years in New Zealand. And I think New Zealand readers would would see a connection to, to aspects of the New Zealand economy. Because what he's arguing in this book is that the UK economy has become an economy where um, most sectors are making money through rents, through people sitting on assets and wealth generating on the basis of those assets. And interestingly, he takes a series of sectors, intellectual property, natural resources, contracting out. Contracting out one is interesting because often, you know, we were touching on it earlier, it said that, you know, contracts for infrastructure are a way for dynamic competition. But he, his point there is actually oftentimes um, you get big private infrastructure giants just sitting on these long-term contracts which give them security of profits. And what he says in this book is that actually the UK economy isn't producing very much. The UK economy is mainly producing landlords. Um, and that is um, something that I think gives us food for thought in New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, everyone wants to be a landlord and basically get money for nothing, um, uh, as the song goes. Uh, and the solution for rentier capitalism is what? Yeah, he talks about a few things in the in the last chapter of the book. Um, he, he talks about stronger anti-competition laws to take on some of these kind of big monopolies or people with market power. And he says you know, we need to get much more serious. Connected to our last topic um, with the digital giants, um, but he also you know, he talks about um, a well-balanced investment strategy, industrial strategy. Again, connected to what we talked about, things like a national investment bank or national infrastructure bank. Um, and he talks about something that we, we don't talk about so much in New Zealand economic debates, which is um, public ownership. And um, and what he, uh, I think, refers to is, is, is kind of decommodifying certain things. That is saying that some things are too important to be left to the market and, and saying that some things need to be taken out of the market. And he says that um, uh, doing that will, will kind of change the overall balance of the economy as well as being good for, for social outcomes. Um, I think it's a, it's a really refreshing analysis. Um, it's also got very good kind of technical um, analysis of each sector. Um, and it's, yeah, probably since Piketty, the, the book of book analysing kind of contemporary economic developments that, that I've been most excited about. Yeah, and, and the, going down the track of um, using your antitrust authorities, mm. your mo monopoly busters, mm. to effectively be tools of wealth distribution and mm. of improving the economic efficiency mm. of the entire society is mm. something we're sort of lost sight of. Mm. Um, Got to remember that the uh, Gilded Age of the late 1800s, early 1900s was ended 
in part by the antitrust authority that Teddy Roosevelt set up that broke up Standard Oil. Mm-hmm. Um, now, maybe it wasn't a great thing that we had a vibrant, um, competitive, um, price-lowering global oil industry afterwards, but it certainly uh, did the trick, um, breaking up those railway and oil trust barons, um, really made the world and America the greatest um, uh, capitalist democracy much better. Mm. And um, breaking up Marbell, mm. you know, in mm. the 50s really mm. had a huge impact. So we don't see, I think, enough of uh, using your um, monopoly authority to um, improve public welfare. And I think uh, we've lost sight of that. So very interesting point. I look forward to reading the book. Max Harris, um, I really appreciate you coming in away from all. <laughs> <It's been> great. <laughs> Into, um, to talk about these fun um, political, uh, the political economy. That's the thing I love talking about. And it's always good to find another tragic. <laughs> uh, Max Harris, thank you. Uh, Max is the author of the book, um, The New Zealand uh, Project, uh, published by Bridget Williams Books, and is a prolific uh, commentator and researcher on economic, political, and uh, welfare issues. Kakite, uh, and we'll have you again in another month or so. Lovely to, lovely to talk. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was another um, version of The Hoon for the week that was for the weekend on the kaka. Thank you.